the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports. That's Barton Simmons. That's Tom Fernelli. We are back here. It is Thursday. And uh, with all of the Hurry Up Hot Seats now uh, officially completed, at least on the recording end, one more episode still to officially publish. Uh, That will be tomorrow for the number one team in the country. Click to find out who it is. Uh, and uh, with all of our spring gleanings as well, we realized that it was time to uh, turn our ear back to our loyal listeners who've been filling our five-star review mailbag with a lot of fun, some jokes, some laughs, some stories, some insightful questions, and uh, and a lot of questions about dream conference realignment. We'll get to those at another time. I think we've got a great collection for today, especially as we are maybe taking a step back off of very team-specific stuff, some more just good, good talking points. Also, some news that we think is bubbling beneath the surface. But first, gentlemen, uh, how are we doing today on this Thursday? Uh, we're pretty good. Hundred So 24 teams we've done on the Hurry Up Hot Seats. That means there's 106 possibilities. That's right. Last spot. <laughs> Should be interesting. Uh, I, I'm good. <clears throat> I found out. Yeah, found out this morning that the Premier League is coming back in a couple of weeks, so we're getting more sports in the near that, future. So that's, that's always sort of, good. Is that some sort of soccer soccer <laughs> topic you just brought up? It is the premier soccer league in the world, sir. It is the home of Aston Villa, and Aston Villa will be playing in the very first match in the return. That's just how big and important they are. Is that your? Is that when your the scarves on your? Uh huh. In your closet, are they Aston Villa scarves? That's right. Yes, or as as Chris Hassel pronounced it on HQ this morning, Aston Villa. <laughs> is, is, I that, can't, is that it, an incorrect way of pronouncing it? Not in Spain, but in England. But it's yes. in England. <laughs> <laughs> not all Euro pronunciations are the same. I've heard. Um, well, hey, I think that's exciting. As you know, you already in the. Uh, you know, in, in the sports drought, you roped me in with Bundesliga, and I'm like three or four match weeks in to uh, – now I'm even calling them match weeks. Yeah, uh, look at you. Yeah. You're a pro. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'll, I'll give it a spin for sure. Does Tom's Twitter tip of the day, does that mean that the system will be up and running, process will be in full force for the Premier League? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, for sure. And unlike the Bundesliga where I'm relying on nothing – what numbers? I actually know stuff about the Premier League. <laughs> okay. Well, it's very German of us to only rely on the science and the numbers. It's very cold and calculated. <laughs> um, all right. Before we jump into the mailbag questions, a uh, little bit, and we are recording again. Thursday, early afternoon on the East Coast, there are uh, reports from 24-7, Dogs 247, indicating that they believe that our Georgia Bulldogs are very much in the mix to land a commitment from former or current USC quarterback JT Daniels. JT Daniels entered the transfer portal uh, with a, a very flowery, uh, friendly statement from Clay Helton and the school. They want to help him pursue all of his different options. He would be welcomed back. And I think that seeing so much support from the school going through the process uh, at least in my reading of the situation, maybe uh, had me putting more stock into the idea that JT Daniels was going to test the water and, and then maybe come back. Well, this is 
this is far different from that because you are entering the transfer portal, yes, but you are also selecting uh, a school on the other side of the country and a national championship contender. So, I mean, a couple different levels to this. Uh, JT Daniels leaving USC. Maybe you had already brought yourself to that point thinking it was just going to be Keaton Slovis leading the way and uh, Daniels was going to be elsewhere. Number two, what are we expecting if if this ends up becoming true in terms of how he fits into Georgia's uh, future or how he might even fit into Georgia's present? I I mean, I see JT Daniels um, finding an opportunity to potentially, and I could be misreading this, but to potentially be leading a national championship contender on the field, potentially starting as soon as 2020. Am I jumping my guns on that? I don't, I mean, yeah, I think it's possible. The The thing that's so interesting to me is JT Daniels is probably, like, you could, prior to the JT Daniels transfer, I guess you could make an argument maybe KJ Costello might have been the top transfer option at the quarterback position, uh, but I don't know if I'm if I'm just not thinking of someone else, but it was probably either Costello or Jamie Newman as the top Derek transfer King, quarterback. If, if you want to like King, yeah, 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 that you could make a case for Derek King. Um, if if in fact JT Daniels transfers to Georgia, then Georgia. A place that, well, yeah, I mean, like they they just produced a NFL quarterback in Jake Fromm, so there there's something there. But everyone's sort of been criticizing Georgia for not being a quarterback friendly offense, not being a place that maximizes their quarterback talents, and yet we're sitting here on the precipice of Georgia having maybe the top two transfer quarterback options come to Athens in the same cycle. I just think that that's like throws everything for a little bit of a loop. Not that like they wouldn't get one. I mean, I get it. You're going to compete for a national championship, but that that's where JT Daniels would choose is that's just a, not what I would, not what, where I saw this going, not, not the direction that I thought saw this landing when he started to pursue transfer options. Yeah, I think I think things become really interesting if he does get immediate eligibility, because as we've seen the whole you know, t- they've they've tabled the discussion of you know getting rid of the the year sit out period. They're probably going to not approve that until January at the earliest now. So, if he's going to be immediately eligible, he has to appeal for it and get a waiver. And if he gets that waiver, Georgia's suddenly in a position where it had Jamie Newman come in as a grad transfer. Now it has JT Daniels. So now it's got a quarterback competition between two guys who came. And I think Jamie Newman came to Georgia thinking he had a you know with the idea of being the starter. I mean, this is a guy that we've seen, you know, if you look at Heisman odds, he's like the third highest, got the third best odds in that offense. And I don't think that's very good reflection of the reality of the situation, but it'll be interesting to see if he gets immediate eligibility, what Georgia plans to do between Newman and Daniels, like would Newman then transfer out to go somewhere else before the season started? So I think, for Georgia, they're looking at it like if it comes to that and they have to deal with it, they'll deal with it. But I think that their interest is probably from a standpoint of, all right, we'll assume he's going to have to sit out 2020. And maybe it's better that he does sit out 2020 simply because who knows when he's going to be able to get on campus and be able to really join the team. So maybe the plan is Jamie Newman 2020 and then 2021 is when it's JT Daniels' turn to take over. And then I'm guessing one of the guys that's currently on the depth chart would probably be entering the transfer portal shortly after that. Right. Georgia so, really likes putting itself like in this in this precarious position. <laughs> like we're, we're we just got done with them clarifying their quarterback depth chart, letting Justin Fields transfer out, going and being a Heisman finalist at Ohio State as they roll with Jake Fromm. Now we could, if JT Daniels transfers, which hasn't happened as of this recording, and if he is eligible, which still wouldn't have happened, uh, but it's possible. If those things happen, then then Kirby Smart is just inviting further criticisms of his handling of the quarterback position if one guy ends up being a lot better than the other. And perhaps, you know, like there's, there's going to be opportunities for us to criticize when and why and how those guys got on the field and how the depth chart was managed. I just think this is, 
it's kind of deja vu all over again. Well, I but, mean, but, excuse I was, me. I was just going to say, maybe Kirby understands that, you know, with, with both Daniels and Newman, somebody's got to be able to prove that they can withstand the crucible of being on the, you know, the, the focus of the Cover 3 podcast. This is a major media market for them now. You, you have to be able to take the heat. So maybe that's what he's doing. He wants to get as many guys in there to see who emerges ready and battle tested. I, I think that I kind of like it. I'm definitely showing my Georgia bias here, but sure. The Justin Fields' performance last season, when compared to Jake Fromm's performance, was a very hot topic and burned uh, Georgia fans up. But if you're going to take the idea that I'm going to treat my quarterback position just like I treat my offensive line, just like I, I treat my running back room, where you're just trying to stack it with as much talent as possible and just let the competition just sort of spit out whoever it spits out. I I don't hate at least the starting point of it. Now, clearly, results are going to be how we end up judging him. So, you know, what, what happens if there is a J, JT Daniels-Jamie Newman battle is fascinating, but I think it might reflect something that Tom has kind of been working towards, which is and JT Daniels is an option for the future. He was a true freshman, really a high school senior in 2018 as USC went five and seven. He was thrown into the fire. Uh, we hadn't brought Graham Harrell in to open up the offense. Rough season for JT Daniels. Had a couple of flashes where you could see uh, all that high quarterback rating before he reclassified, but that was tough. But then last year, gets injured in the first game. I think if I'm setting betting odds on him being able to get a waiver, I think that's favorable based on the four-game redshirt rule that is already in place and based on the potential of just declaring that as a medical redshirt. So JT Daniels is going to have anywhere between you know two to three years of eligibility remaining whenever he becomes eligible. So maybe it is a, we're going to play Jamie Newman for 2020. We've got the quarterback position locked down. But I also wonder if inviting JT Daniels in is a little bit of that Georgia coaching staff understanding that allowing Jamie Newman to just sort of roll untested into this uh, coronavirus shortened fall camp with the brand new offense that the whole offense might be able to benefit from getting a little bit of competition and maybe just maybe JT Daniels might end up being a better option but you're right Tom for somebody who is third on Heisman odds for someone who's getting like first round NFL draft pick type hype if he were to get uh, scooped out here by JT Daniels, I think it would be one of the most fascinating off-season storylines about a team that has had no shortage of off-season storylines in recent years. Well, here's here's a question for you both. Based on what we know and have seen from each player, let's let's say, hypothetically, JT Daniels does transfer to Georgia. JT Daniels is immediately eligible. Who's your starter in 2020, Newman or Daniels? I go Daniels. I, I do think it depends a little bit on what how they're trying to shape this new offense, like what it's, what the idea is for what it's supposed to look like, because they have different skills. Like if it's, if it's, if you're trying to make it a, you know, more of a offense that incorporates quarterback run, incorporates some, some zone read. Like I, I think that obviously Jamie, Jamie Newman would have the edge. I also think Jamie Newman has to have some sort of edge just by the sense of he's been preparing with Georgia staff for a while. Um, as a enrollee um, on, on just like all things being equal. That's a really tough question. I, I guess I would lean JT Daniels on that. Um, I don't know. I, I, I agree, but I do wonder just because if we think of where Daniels is coming from, he was at USC. Uh, he was, you know, he was originally recruited there when USC was running their same old school kind of pro style offense. They bring in Graham Harrell. They go to the air raid. Daniels wins the starting job, but he gets hurt. Slovis comes in, takes it over, and Daniels clearly, by the fact that he's you know looking to transfer, wasn't wasn't expecting to get that job back. So, in a weird way, there's a part of me that wonders if Daniels might have been better suited for Georgia in its offense last year than he will be this year. Because if Slovis was the superior option in an air raid at USC, while Todd Munkin doesn't run a, a he, 
you know, he I wouldn't consider what he ran at Oklahoma State to be like a pure air raid, though there were a lot of similarities. If that's the offense he's looking to run at Georgia, it might be Newman better suited for it too. So I think I think I would rather have Daniels just based on the talent of what you saw from him coming out of high school, but I don't I don't know if it's as clear cut. So another theory uh, that you could consider here in this is that Georgia and their coaches may well have been full throttle, very confident in their transfer quarterback, Jamie Newman. But then they heard the SEC East preview pod, spring gleaning pod, heard Tom Fernelli expose Jamie Newman and his adjusted accuracy and started to panic. And when they got wind of Jamie Newman's adjusted accuracy, uh, they they had to they had to look for a backup plan. Yeah, I, I mean this is this is all part of the um, this is all part of the Kirby Smart uh, insurance policy, where we just trash the new offense and go back to pro style. Like when when Kirby Smart is no longer comfortable, he's gonna have it's already begun. Yeah, yeah, he's gonna have JT Daniels and the old playbook ready to go. You know, if if he thinks that putting the ball in the air, hey, listen, only one bad thing can happen when you hand the ball off. There's a couple bad things that can happen when you put that ball in the air. So, I, what if they just what if they just let like they just hand Jamie Newman the the new spread playbook, and then they head hand JT Daniels the old pro style playbook and they both study them simultaneously and then as soon as things go off the rails with Jamie Newman and Kirby Smart's able to 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 take over the offense he just he just institutes the same the thing that JT Daniels has been studying all along it'll be like in season three of Friday Night Lights where coach Taylor went into the one game with Saracen and the, the plan was Saracen when you're in there we're going to run the eye and when JT's in there we're going to run the spread as if teams do that <laughs> uh, definitely I mean you know keep it keep it locked with 24-7 sports and uh, cbssports.com uh, I, I guess regardless it, it shows that there's not a lot of faith in Stetson Bennett uh, if anything goes wrong for the Bulldogs in 2020. Now, all right, let's, let's take a dip into the mailbag. I like this one because it's uh takes a look at college football as a whole. This question from Seth. Uh, this is a backhanded compliment of, to the highlight of my week, the cover three podcast because of the in-depth analysis like this show and highly detailed recruiting in today's college football world, like what you get at 24 seven sports is college football getting too predictable? Example, LSU, quote, shocks by winning the title last year, but if we are being honest, it's not shocking. Barton even said something like, quote, it's not surprising because the roster is full of dudes. We know what the recruiting classes look like two to three years in advance. So is it getting too predictable? I'm a Michigan fan and I am getting, and I am losing, wait, excuse me. Uh, I am a Michigan fan and I'm losing hope because Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State continue to churn out classes of dudes and Michigan is not getting on that same level. What incentive do fans outside of those three to four programs have anymore in a world where everything is so well covered? Can a team without a roster full of dudes win? I remember in 2001 when Oklahoma won. It was baffling for them to beat Kansas State, Nebraska, and Texas in the same season. Can that even happen in today's game? Can a team truly shock the world? Give me some hope. Seth, a Michigan fan living in Clemson country. No. Sorry, Seth. Uh, I just, I mean, I like the idea that it's becoming too predictable, I think is off because I don't, if you go through history of college football and teams that are winning the national titles it's generally been the same you know <laughs> it's, it's been a situation where you, there's there's a few teams every single season who you go in as far as like the idea of shocking he brought up <clears throat> that Oklahoma team that they won in 2001 but it was the 2000 season and I do think like I went back through and was trying to say okay so who's a surprise champion and I think that Oklahoma team is probably the best example simply because it began the year ranked 19th so even then it was a top 20 team but the Sooners hadn't finished a season ranked before that since 1993. That was Bob's, you know, this was the year they won the title was Bob Stoops' second season, and they'd finished strong, which is what led to them being ranked that year. But still, it was a surprise to see them go undefeated starting at number 19 and win. But if we just go through recent years, 
2013, Florida State started at 11. Maybe that's a surprise. I don't know, being outside the top 10. 2010, there was the Auburn team that started at 22nd in the poll. That was a surprise. 2003, Nick Saban's title at LSU. They started the year 14. The previous season, they'd been unranked. And then 2002, Ohio State started the year 13th and had finished unranked the previous season. So there are surprises, but let's go through the names of those surprises again. Auburn, Florida State, LSU, Ohio State, Oklahoma. They're already the teams that you would expect at any given time to be capable of winning a national title. Back in 1888, Yale opened the season with a 76 to nothing win over Wesleyan. You think anybody was surprised when that team went 13 and 0, won the national championship? This is as old as time. That's what college football is. You know, this the best teams are the best teams. Uh, I will say, and 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 it makes a little more like when we were texting about questions that we may address on the pod. Uh, it makes more sense to find out that this is coming from a Michigan fan perspective. In other words, like this guy's just a little bit like, uh, you know, throwing his hands up in the air. Like, when are we ever going to have a chance again? I, I think that we can take some lessons from look what, what, what happened with Auburn when they won the national championship? Well, they got Cam Newton, like Cam Newton transformed that team. Sure. What happened with LSU? I mean, yes, LSU was talented enough, but they got, you know, Joe Burrow took a huge next step and then they had, Joe Burrow. So if they had Jordan Jefferson as their quarterback, they probably don't win the national championship. Um, Clemson is again, like that wasn't a school. And I, I took a, I took a long, long dissection of Clemson and their rise on the Barton and Bud Bud pod recently. And, and so I, I, that hasn't been a team that necessarily is just like loaded with freaks in a way that Alabama and some others are, but what happened there? I mean, Clemson got, got quarterback play. Uh, Deshaun Watson sort of elevated that team and allowed them to compete for national championships. So in that sense, from the perspective of Michigan, it's not like you think Michigan, if they get, if they get a, a, a badass at quarterback, like if they get a guy that's a first round draft pick at quarterback, you think Michigan is like, is, is still just a, a, a practice of futility and like trying to compete for a national championship no like of course not like if michigan gets a dude at quarterback michigan can compete for a national championship um so i I think that they the idea that uh you know college football is like there's not enough you know it's just too predictable is only true in the sense that the game has changed recently to where you better like if you want to win a national championship you better have a good quarterback um and so I think in that sense, maybe it's true, but we, we like it's proven recently, like we don't necessarily know when the good quarterbacks are, are going to emerge from where and who they are. He's asking for hope. I have 10 teams since 2010 that were really close. Um, and I think that these are all 10, and I try to get these 10 teams that are not tra- traditionally uh, dude laden. But in 2010, uh, TCU was number two in the country at the end of the year, 13 and 0. Number three was the Oregon team that was the runner up and played like a field goal game against that Auburn national championship team. Stanford that year was 12 and one. The 2011 Oklahoma state team was the first one that came to mind. It's not loaded with dudes, but Iowa state took them down. They fell out of the BCS race in 2012. I will admit that that Oregon team, um, which was just one overtime loss to Stanford, other than that, won every other game. You could argue that by that point, it's a freshman Mariota. It's Chip Kelly, well-entrenched. They're off a national championship appearance. They were recruiting at a pretty high level. I would take that, though I don't know if they would have met uh, Bud Elliott's blue chip ratio. I think the 2013 Michigan State team only loss was to Notre Dame in September, beat Ohio State in the Big Ten title game, won the Rose Bowl. Like in the college football playoff era, that Michigan State team, not a roster full of dudes, could have had a crack at the national championship. 2014, the beginning of the college football playoff era, Baylor or TCU. I mean, pick either one of them. They were right there. 2017, Wisconsin 13 and 1. 
beat Michigan, only lost by six to Michigan State in the Big Ten title game. And then Notre Dame in 2018 goes 12-1. and one. Those are all teams that, while especially for a Notre Dame, Wisconsin, Michigan State, are uh, they are traditional powers with a lot of built-in history and, and success. Uh, they are not all the way blue chip, Ohio State, Alabama, Clemson level. So I think that you should still have hope that you can compete for a national championship, but I understand that when you just look at the list of champions, why it can be a little bit disheartening. But I think that the, the, you're, but some a few of those teams you just rattled off got got mop stuffed in the national mm-hmm. league in the, in the, on the big stage, and so the point remains that like, well, when you get there, still you know it's still kind of the haves and have nots, and 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 I that's where I think like the exception while, while Auburn is is considered a a blue blood. The, like that was not a team that was loaded with NFL draft picks. They just had a, a transcendent quarterback, and so that that's why I'm saying like your hope, if you if you want to get on the national stage and actually compete beyond just uh, just getting there and just start surviving your conference play or whatever it is, that that's where I think it's it's really all about the quarterback position right now. Okay. Yeah, and I I, I do think that another thing we need to mention too is that the playoff system does make it more difficult for a non-blue blood or a non-team with dudes to win it because you don't just have to win one game. Like you get like a in in the old, in the BCS system, you know, maybe you you go 12 and 0 or you win your conference title and you're an unexpected team and you get to the title game and then you have a good day and you win. In the playoff system as we've seen with teams like Washington and Michigan State that have reached the playoff that weren't exactly what you would consider dude-laden rosters You've got to win twice now against those teams that like that likely do have them. So I think that with a four-team playoff, it does become a lot more difficult. And if they expand the playoff again, and although I don't like the idea, I think it's inevitable, it's going to become even more difficult, which is the ultimate irony in that people want to expand the playoff because they want it to be more inclusive. But the reality is it's just going to make it harder for those teams that they feel are getting left out to win the whole thing. That's a really good take. Oh, oh, you want to expand the playoff? Well, congratulations. Just give Alabama and Clemson more championships. Yeah. Now now all you got to do is win your conference and then beat Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State back-to-back. Good, good luck. Goodness gracious. All right. Thank you, Seth. Best of luck uh, as you continue to root for Michigan in the heart of uh, Clemson country. All right. This question from A. Cochran. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. I love listening to the banter. I normally spend Saturdays at work, so I don't often get to watch games, but I love hearing the names of players and teams so I can look them up later. Barton, I know your Ivy League football career is joked about in good fun on the podcast. No, we joke about it seriously. Uh, But I think it's awesome to have an opinion from someone who competed in the sport at a higher level. I have two questions for you. The first is... What is the most difficult scheme-specific thing that Yale asked you to do? The second is what is your favorite in-game or football-related part of your college experience? Um, most, what, what was the second qu- part of the question? Like uh, what, e- Either like the, an in-game or football-related experience or, I guess, tradition or memory, something like that, okay. I guess. Okay, all right. Uh, man, I should have prepared for that one. I guess I should. If, if it's that spectacular, I would know it off the top of my head. Uh the first question, it's, it is good to address a, uh, a common fallacy in thinking about Ivy League football. A couple things. One, people that are smart enough to get into the Ivy League, they may be smart and they may eventually be uh, incredible Wall Street bankers or leaders of our country or presidential candidates or whatever – but that doesn't mean they know football. There are some really smart guys with great ACT scores that are football idiots. And conversely, just because our coaches coach at an Ivy League institution doesn't necessarily mean that they're professorial in the Ivy League standards. Uh, so it wasn't as if, like, because we were at the Ivy League, we were running some, like, incredibly like complex schemes in fact now i will say our defensive coordinator in my time there a guy named rick flanders who was a 
really good coach, <clears throat> but his whole it was he was Iowa in his philosophy in the terms of like Bimba don't break, like we're gonna keep it simple. So schematically, I never had a chance to do anything too uh, too complex. It was I, in fact I got frustrated because in high school I used to always blitz and I used to make a lot of plays sacking quarterbacks and things like that and I blitzed like twice in my career at Yale and one of those times I jumped off sides and it didn't even count uh so that was frustrating um basically what I did schematically at Yale was I was like a like a box safety they'd roll me down they they put me in the you know what my favorite defense at Yale this is this is actually a good story it was called it was it was named after me because it was basically it was basically built so that I could just be in the center of the the field and just sort of be a, like almost a Mike linebacker that could sort of just just chase the football. And we called it our my favorite. Whenever I got to pick the video, the movie we watched to our games or from our games, I would always pick Willow. You guys remember the the, yeah. the movie Willow? Of course. Yes. Yeah, Willow Alfgood, who was just that was awesome. Like the one of the greatest movies of all time. And so the the name of the defense was Willow. And so my favorite defense we ever had was was called uh, was was Willow Dime Willow was the package where I would just basically be free to run in the middle of the field. Um, so that's that was as that was about as complex as we got. No pattern matching. <laughs> I mean, there, we did some of that, I guess, but it wasn't. I don't think I, I don't think if I sat in on a Nick Saban defensive back meeting that. Uh, you know, he'd be throwing a bunch of stuff at me that I had experience doing. I'll say that. <laughs> um, the I I hope that you don't think that we make fun. Like the 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 Yale experience is welcomed with open arms. I love it. I I, I don't think that. Good. I I, uh, I know you guys treat Yale football with the reverence it deserves. <laughs> uh, and uh, and John, uh, if you're if you're listening to this part, let's definitely clip the section that Barton said about uh, Yale football coaches being dumb and let's turn that into a graphic for Twitter. <laughs> they're not, they were not dumb. They're in fact, you know, it's funny. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of Ivy league coaches that are starting to, um, to sort of hit elsewhere. Uh, and like the, you know, Rutgers hired a bunch of former Ivy league coaches. Um, the Penn offensive coordinator landed, uh, I want to say at Mar- maybe Maryland recently. Um, you know the the new the current defensive coordinator at Oklahoma State was I played against when he was at Cornell he was the head coach there like there's a lot like there's good coaches in the Ivy League but you can go out on the field and they're going to be you know a cheek full of chaw and dog cussing everybody and you know they're they are not uh, they're not exactly the hoity toity types yeah it's more the perception that you're dealing with because it's yeah. Ivy League yeah yeah. Coming up on the other side, taking a look at two of the biggest rivalries in all of college football and some big non-conference opportunities for one of the Big Ten divisions. Next. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
All right, this little uh, we're about we're about to hit an unintentional little Purdue corner. Are we ready? I was born ready. Okay, the first question, and I like this. Nick asks: Below are the top six non-conference games for the Big Ten West teams, and I'll go ahead and tell you the over/under. He sets the over/under at four and a half wins. So four and a half wins, six games. Those six games are as follows. Nebraska, Cincinnati, Wisconsin, Notre Dame. Now, Nebraska, Cincinnati is in Lincoln. Uh, Wisconsin, Notre Dame in Lambeau. Minnesota, BYU. I believe that game's at Minnesota. Purdue mm-hmm. against Memphis. I believe that game is in Lafayette. Purdue mm-hmm. at Boston College and Iowa, Iowa State. So we've got Iowa, Iowa State. Purdue, Boston College, Purdue, Memphis, Minnesota, BYU, Wisconsin, Notre Dame, Nebraska, Cincinnati, over, under, four and a half wins. Well, first, Chip, how do you feel about him leaving Wisconsin App State off the list? Incredibly insulted. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be considered a big non-conference game, but uh, I feel like four and two. I think that they're going to, I think Wisconsin loses to Notre Dame. And then I think either Purdue or Iowa lose to either Memphis or Iowa State. And then maybe also the BC, but I still think four and two. Okay. Wait, what, was, what, is our, what is our over and under? What is our total? Four and a half. I'm taking the under. So, so five and one would mean that's asking a lot, I feel like. Mm-hmm. So you gotta, you're asking for Nebraska to beat Cincinnati. So let's just let's just what like what's the what's the toughest game there? We'll say Wisconsin say, Notre, Notre Dame. Wisconsin yeah, so, Notre so, Dame. So yeah. Notre Dame. Let's just call Notre Dame beat Wisconsin. Your your loss, and so then you're saying Nebraska beats Cincinnati, Purdue beats Memphis. Like that's tough. Iowa beats Iowa State. That's tough. I think probably Purdue should be favored to beat Boston College, and then Minnesota should beat BYU. Uh, I feel like four and two is to me is more of a best case. And I might even like lean towards three, three and three. three. Yeah, I think four and a half is too aggressive. Way too. I only see two guaranteed wins, or at least not guaranteed, but it's something in my calculation. Likely. Yeah, two likely wins. And if you're setting a four and a half with two likely wins, that's asking for just a little bit much. Now, all that said, I mean, if Wisconsin beats Notre Dame in Lambeau, like not a stunner of an upset. And you know Iowa gets it done against Iowa State. Like this, I could see how five and one uh, comes out of this. But if you're asking us, I don't think so. Uh, okay. Also, which happens first? Michigan beats Ohio State, or a Big Ten West team beats Ohio State? All right. So the Big Ten West teams that's that we're considering then. Does he mean in, in the title game or in general? He said he says like f- starting right now, what happens first? And this could be you know it might take five years for either one of these things to happen. But Michigan beats Ohio State, or a team from the Big Ten West beats Ohio State, and I'm interpreting it as regular season or conference championship. Oh well, then you got to take Big Ten West simply because Michigan only gets one shot at Ohio State every year, is where the Big Ten West will get four if Ohio State reaches the conference championship game. Boom. Settled. That's Next. Such a, that's such an analytical way of thinking about it. Yeah, I'm taking Michigan. I, I, I might take way. Michigan, too. All right. I so mean. Let's look at it, though, this way. Let's. They play Michigan this year. From the West, they're playing Iowa, Nebraska, Illinois. Illinois is the only one on the road. Michigan, I would say, of those four, probably has the best chance this year. Correct? Correct. Next year, they've got at Michigan to finish the season, but before that, from the West, they start the season at Minnesota, then they get at Nebraska, and then Purdue. I still think it's Michigan. You don't think Minnesota or Nebraska on the road could be problematic by then? Capital D, definitely not Nebraska, and we'll see where Minnesota's at. I mean, we're talking about Ohio State here. All right, well, 2022. Michigan at home at the end of the year. From the West, they get Iowa at home, Northwestern on the road, Wisconsin at home. Iowa on the road and Wisconsin at home is tricky. Because Iowa on the road is, you know, going to be nighttime at Kinnick, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, 
I'm going to stick with my Big Ten West prediction simply because in 2018 at Purdue, Purdue won 49 to 20, and in 2016 at Iowa, Iowa won, or was that 2017? Whatever the year Iowa won, like 59 to 30 against them, or 55 24 in 2017. So there have been a few losses to the West since Michigan last beat Ohio State, and I would expect that just based on amount of chances that they get, the Big Ten West will beat them before Michigan does. So, so let's just say it, it's going. Let's say it is. It is written. They do lose in conference. One of either this year or next year. Do you, you think it's more likely that that comes from one of the Big Ten West than this year, next year's Michigan teams? Mm, yeah. Again, if if Ohio State gets to the Big Ten title game, they will be playing the West four times. They only got to play Michigan once. So just statistically, yeah. Man, I've got too much Michigan belief. It's not. I mean, if we change this to like – does Michigan beat Ohio State before Ohio State loses to a West team in the conference title game? Then I would take Michigan. But just with too many opportunities. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. JD asks, hey, guys, I'm a longtime fan. Uh, this one could be fast. Wondering which team you guys think has the best uniforms in the Big Ten West. <laughs> What's with the Big Ten West today? <laughs> Um, best uniforms in the Big Ten West. Iowa. Um, I would say, I would say, uh, I'm sort of, who you got, Chip? I, I was going to go Illinois. Really? Yeah. Illinois. Yeah, give me give me some of the because Illinois got trotting out a lot of alternates between their grays, their navies, and their oranges. You know they they. I mean Tom, y'all they mix and match a lot. I like it. They do. Uh, I, I Iowa for me, it's the clear cut winner. I just I love the color scheme to begin with, the black and yellow. But also, if you look at like the Big Ten West as a whole, every single program in the division for their logo has a as a letter. Whereas Iowa has a distinctive logo that is just plain Iowa that can only be Iowa. So when it comes to all that put together, I just feel like the Hawkeyes are the, the obvious answer here. Uh, uh, golly, this is like the Big Ten West doesn't isn't like a great uniform division. I don't think. Am I wrong in that? No, you're not wrong. I'm not like I'm not like chopping at the bit to, to name anybody. Uh, I would say I'll go. Uh, I'll go. I'll go uh, Minnesota. Okay. Uh, and yeah, that's, I mean, I, I also think, like, if you look, there isn't a horrible uniform in the division other than Northwestern's gothic uniforms, but there's really, outside of Iowa, in my opinion, there's no great uniform either. Um, and then one last one. This is from Hall M. Agree with your takes about, and he asked this on May 20th, so... Uh, obviously been listening to the podcast. Agree with your takes around Brom and Purdue. The hiring of Diaco was not mentioned much when talking about coordinator changes, and a lot of people don't seem to be high on him. I know his one year at Nebraska wasn't great, but when he was at Notre Dame and Louisiana Tech, he was pretty good DC. Wondering why so many people are down on him. Love the podcast, and by the way, Scott Frost is overrated. <laughs> this is a th- So this is actually an... I think a really interesting question because I think probably people like, like us that are, that are in like, like so wrapped up in college football as much as we are and who, who, who are, who like have a lean towards some sort of preoccupation, preoccupation, uh, with stick and like <laughs> funny things about the game. Maybe we're like, are we overlooking Bob Diaco's competence as a defensive coordinator because he's just so damn funny to like observe? One hundred percent. Yeah, I think. I mean, it. I think there's also recency bias because he was a good defensive coordinator at Notre Dame. He had some very good defenses with the Irish, but then you know he left. 
he takes over at UConn, and UConn is an impossible job for the most part, so he didn't have any success there. But then you pile on top of that, the cherry on top of that disaster Sunday was the whole making up the rivalry with UCF, the civil conflict, which was an easy thing to poke fun at. And then, yeah, he goes, you know, he's a linebacker coach at Oklahoma, which you're not really going to get a ton of attention there, but that was after that a bad season as Nebraska's defensive coordinator. So when you look at when he's actually been in the spotlight in a spotlight job since he left Notre Dame, there hasn't been a ton of success. So I think that's kind of why, but I, I don't think he's a bad coach. I just think that he hasn't really been in a great position. And at Purdue, I don't know if he has the kind of talent he's going to need to really turn that defense around quickly. Although he's got a, he's got a great pass rusher to start with, which is always a nice help, but I don't know. I, I think that Diaco is no better or worse than most coaches. I just think that he's had a bad run of it lately. When he was 40 years old and he signed a five-year, $8 million deal to become the new head coach at UConn, and he got up there and he started dropping Latin at the podium <laughs> and he started talking about energy vampires that suck the enthusiasm out of life, uh, th- that moment on was when Diaco's, and you're right, Barton, we're too close, but that was when Diaco's sort of tale and, and the jokes and, and sort of the environment and the aura around him were written. Now, when he followed that up with uh, creating the civil conflict trophy, uh, a rivalry that meant so much that when Scott Frost won the trophy back, they just sort of threw it in a closet somewhere in Orlando. I... I just think that his time at UConn, specifically, if you're asking why people are down on Bob Diaco, it's because when he was the head coach at UConn, he seemed disconnected from the same reality shared by the rest of the college football world. And so that made him a little bit of a punching bag. And until... You know, until, until he's leading dominant defensive turnarounds, until he's sort of been ingrained somewhere for a while, then he's going to do that. But I will say this for Bob Diaco. There have been coaches, including the one that won the most recent national championship, that carried around some jokey punching bag reputations before. Now, it took a lot of work, both sort of him doing his own personal work and then also the success on the field, but it's not something that you can't come back from. I mean, how many times was the whole, whole like uh, Ole Miss Coach o ripped his shirt off and challenged a player to fight him? Like that was just sort of surrounded him for a long time, almost like a joke. Now you can mention it now and people remember it, but it doesn't hit the same now that he's got a national championship. So all you got to do, Bob Diaco, is go win a national championship as a head coach somewhere and you'll be good. I'll forget about the energy vampires. I remembered the energy vampires. I forgot about the Latin speaking part. What, like, can you, like, what, A, I wonder, does anyone know where the civil conflict trophy is today? And B, could you imagine, like, how awkward it would be to be, to be given a trophy of a rivalry that you didn't sign up for and just, like, be expected to then take it back with you, with your team? Like, I, that, that, I want to. I'm kind of curious if there's any footage of that, like how that went down. Scott Frost like accepting the trophy that he didn't even really want. Well, I, we'll have a rivalry renewed this fall when when Purdue and Nebraska meet. Yes, yes, uh, yes. That's nice. the storyline that we need to ask heading into <laughs> it. Uh, hey, hey, Coach Frost, Chip Patterson, CBS Sports. Um, the last <laughs> time that you and Bobby, <laughs> um, all right. Let's see. We're we're out. We've we've gotten out of the Big Ten West. Um, this question from Will: What is the fundamental difference between the Ohio State Michigan rivalry and the Iron Bowl? Why is Auburn able to jump up and get Alabama every three years or so, yet Michigan falls every year to the Buckeyes? What is Michigan not doing that Auburn is recruiting, offensive style? What about Ohio State compared to Alabama as the favorite? Ohio State has more success in its rivalry game, but Alabama clearly has more national championship success. So at the, the two things that come to mind in thinking about this question are, are one, I do, I do give Ohio State a lot of credit 
And I give Urban Meyer a lot of credit in that they embrace the rivalry, embrace the importance of the rivalry, obsess about that game in such a 365 days a year manner that it makes sense that they're going to be successful in that. That is not the way Nick Saban approaches it. I mean, Nick Saban is much more of a process everyday sort of guy. And, you know, next, you know, every opponent we have to prepare the same for. It's funny. We were joking in, uh, you know, our Nick Saban did an interview for 24 seven sports on our social distance series. And it was, he did it in the, I assume it was at the Alabama offices. And we were joking that like, I wonder when Alabama plans on going digital because behind him was just like, rows and rows of binders like as far as the eye could see including like a big fat binder for like western carolina or something and so i just think that there is like i think that there's a every game matters sort of mentality at alabama that's fine i mean that's a great mentality but ohio state obsesses over that game and i think that that serves them well in their success in that game and i think the other factor that comes to mind for me is, and I don't know if this is fair or if this is accurate or not, but it just feels like at the end of the year there, when Alabama has had to, you know, they've survived LSU, they've they've played A&M, they've, you know, there's, it just feels like a little more of a grind at the end of the season to where they might not be quite as uh, fresh as maybe an Ohio State team through the Big Ten might be heading into that Michigan game. Yeah, I mean, I I think Martin covered a lot of it. I think it's the way that everybody prepares for the game and treats the game in Ohio State for them, even though they've got, you know, Big Ten conference title, national title hopes every single season, they focus on that Michigan game because that's a huge game for them every single year. And obviously, if you're Auburn, you know, you're in the same state as Alabama. Alabama is the Goliath of your state. It's the Goliath of college football in a lot of ways. So you've got kind of that little brother, kid brother, chip on your shoulder thing about you. And you focus on that game. A lot of what Auburn does during the year, you know, like Gus Malzahn knows, like he could have a mediocre or an average season based on expectations. But if the year ends with an Iron Bowl win against Alabama, he's going to get another seven years tacked onto his contract. That's an important thing to be for your Auburn football coach. If you could beat Alabama on a a semi-regular basis, that is a great thing for your job security. So it's very important to you. And meanwhile, with Alabama, like Bart went over, Every game is important to Saban, and the Auburn game is very important to him. It's just it's not more important to him than the LSU game. It's not more important to him than, you know, hell, Charleston Southern, the way he approaches those games. So because of that, I think that leads to a bit more success. And also I think that it's there's some there's somewhat of a talent gap like argument too, whereas while Alabama and Ohio State have, you know, been the two best recruiting programs in the country for like the last decade pretty much. The difference, like Auburn's had a lot of top 10 classes too, whereas I, I looked this up when I was doing my Ohio State top 25 post. You know, the av- since Harbaugh or since Urban Meyer came to Ohio State, their average recruiting class has been 4.9 nationally, as far as rank is concerned. Michigan is the second best in the Big Ten, but their average recruiting class is 13.9. So they're closer to 15th. Meanwhile, Auburn has had a lot more top 10 classes. So you can look at it from that perspective in that. While they're at a disadvantage, just like Michigan is talent-wise, the, the disadvantage isn't quite as great as it is between Ohio State and Michigan right now. And I think that's something that Michigan needs to address if it really wants to get to a spot where it not just picks up a win against Ohio State once to end this losing streak, but gets itself to a point where it's got a chance to win a couple of them. Okay, working theory here. Because I, I agree with pretty much everything. But Auburn, as you mentioned in the same state as we know about the iron bowl rivalry it is like the identity of the state you you know as the the fable goes you come out of the womb and you have to decide between alabama and auburn it, it splits families apart you know the two older siblings decide they go to alabama well then the third one just to be able to spite the rest of his or her family they're going to go to auburn and it is a 365 day a year rivalry i think that adds to the spark and the fire that helps Auburn jump up and get 
some of those wins. I also think that having Auburn so dialed into making the Iron Bowl everything, I think that makes Alabama better for the national championship stage. And I think that uh, while Ohio State being totally focused on Michigan, Michigan wants to beat Ohio State, but as we've seen, Michigan is also very happy just being Michigan and focusing on itself. It doesn't seem to have that family divided uh, situation that you have. They're not in the same state. They're both huge within their own states, but you know, you could live around just Michigan fans. You could live around just Ohio State fans in a way that I don't think you can get in the state of Alabama with Alabama and Auburn. So I, I wonder if like for that second part where it said, what's the difference between Alabama and Ohio State national championship contention? I wonder if Alabama is made better every day out of the year for the competitiveness that Auburn has in that rivalry. I also wonder if when Jim Harbaugh took over at Michigan, like, yeah, beating Ohio State is very important to Michigan fans. It's very important to the program, and it would be very important for his perception nationally from the media and fans alike if he did beat Ohio State. But there's also a chance that when he took over that program, he says, there are other things I have to take care of first, and then I can worry about putting us in a position to beat Michigan. So it's it might not be – it wasn't a situation where maybe, you know, he's – it's not like with Malzahn where I talked about Malzahn's on the hot seat every single year – and then he beats Alabama and it saves his butt. Jim Harbaugh knew he's not, you know, Michigan wasn't going to be firing him after three years. Mm. Interesting. I, like, I, I do. I like that perspective chip about, you know, this like Alabama. Typically the, the Auburn game. I mean, look, they need to win it to get into the national championship and the playoffs, but they've gotten in without it as well. Uh, haven't they? Yeah, they won a national yeah. championship in 2017 yeah. after losing the Iron Bowl. It just feels like it's part of, like it's just part of this 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 process of of you know being forged through fire and um and you know I I wonder if uh, not that there's an exhale after the Ohio State um, Michigan game, but uh, I do think there's probably something to you know Alabama's mentality and approach and and how you know a next game up does allow them to be really successful in the playoffs as well i don't know that was an interesting perspective last question here this one comes from john says where would north dakota state rank against fbs teams coming into the season oh excuse me farmer john shout out farmer john I don't pretend to have watched a lot of North Dakota State. So this is, you know, this is, I do think like um, Bucky Brooks and Daniel Jeremiah on the Move the Sticks podcast broke down the top three quarterbacks for next year's NFL draft. Uh, And in case you were unaware, one of the top three quarterbacks, along with Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, is Trey Lance for North Dakota State. And... I do think that, and and Daniel Jeremiah actually said that he, of the games he watched, he would rank Trey Lance number one, which is which is quite a statement. Um, and so I do think when you think about it that way, that they might have the best quarterback in all of college football. When you think about the the continuity and culture within that program. When you think about that, they're a little bit counterculture right now with the the physicality that they play with. Um, you know, it's a little bit more of a pro style scheme, and and then you know they've got they've got some NFL players. I, mean, I think their their left tackle, I want to say, is is like a really good NFL prospect as well. They, you know, they did lose an, another guy, Jabril Cox, to LSU, who was going to be an NFL pick from there, but. I would tend to think that they're probably top 25-ish. Even if they're not top 25 from a talent perspective, I I tend to think they're sort of in that like Kansas State last year sort of mold. Yeah, see, I I, I think it would depend largely on where they were. Like if are they in the Big Ten West, are they in the Big 12? You know, what what conference are we putting them in? Because I think that would go a long way to deciding. I don't think that 
North Dakota State is coming into the FBS and it's competing for conference titles or playoff berths, but I think that there is enough of a culture and an identity there that they're not going to come into the FBS and be going three and nine. Like they're going to be competing for bowl games every single year. And then obviously once they join the FBS, it would help an uptick in the recruiting. Because if you look at their recruiting rankings compared to the other schools, I mean, they're generally ranked somewhere in the 130s and 24 sevens, you know, composite rankings. So that would improve being in the FBS level clearly. But I think that you look at a situation where we're looking at a seven and five, eight and four kind of team, six and six, maybe a five and seven here and there. And then every once in a while, kind of like you, you said with that Kansas State, you get one of those years where you're flirting with nine, ten wins when you have a veteran solid team. So they wouldn't be a, they wouldn't be a doormat by any means, but I don't think they'd be coming in and kicking everybody's butt either. I'm going to say others receiving votes is where you'd find them. Uh, I've got right here Jeff Sagarin's college football team ratings from the end of last season. North Dakota State finished the year 16-0, and national champions, and Jeff Sagarin rates all of Division One. He does not differentiate between FBS and FCS. And North Dakota State at 16-0 and at the end of the year was number 31. And I think that their company uh, very much represents the kind of group and the kind of grouping that you imagine. The four teams above North Dakota State, all teams that they would be about a point and a half, two and a half points, sort of pick them on a neutral field according to these ratings. Uh, Number 30, Cincinnati. Number 29, Air Force. Number 28, Iowa State. Number 27, Kansas State. The four teams behind North Dakota State, Boise State at 32, Kentucky at 33, Virginia at 34, and Tennessee at 35. They would be between, you know, number 20 and number 40 in all of college football. If you drop them in the Mountain West, then they're probably a 10-win team that has an annual rivalry with Boise State trying to play for a conference championship and group of five. If you drop them in a Power Five conference, then they probably win eight or nine games, all that based on culture alone. And I would say all that based on what they have, not even trying to take into consideration um, you know, what they would get by being an FBS team. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I'm just looking at their schedule right now from last year. <clears throat> I mean, they went 16 and 0. like that's hard to do regardless. If you're, if you went 16 and 0 in FCS, there's, a, and you have the best quarterback in the country and look, uh, you know, I'm not going to make that my talking point from now on. Like, I, I understand that that's debatable, but just theoretically, if you have the best quarterback in all of college football, that's going to win you a couple of games that you might not realize North Dakota State is capable of winning. North Dakota State would have been a four-point favorite against Virginia Tech on a neutral field if they met in January 13th of last year. Yeah. Good team. Mm-hmm. Pretty good team. Uh, reminder. Oh, first of all, one last uh, piece of business here. Are we unveiling our picks on this show, or do we just want to make we want to bring this back to the front of uh, the front of the conversation? Uh, we're going to bring it back and let uh, the Matt Price, who brought it up to us on Twitter, know that we saw his tweet. Oh, okay, Matt Price. We saw your tweet, but it was Che Harrington who brought it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, who said, um, your mission, if you choose to accept it, each of you must, each of you three must select a group of five program or a universally agreed upon bottom tier power five program and make that your program for the season, starting with spring ball, RIP, all the way through the bowl season. Research the roster, scout the best offensive and defensive players, and generally embrace your new program. Go to bat for them on the pod, bet their games during the locks episodes, and live and die each week on your team's performance. You are free to use any criteria when it comes to selecting the team. Would love for y'all to share your team and why and how you selected them. Happy choosing. All right. So when are we, when are we uh, unveiling our selections here? I was thinking on Monday, what we could do is with the three of us go into the weekend and do our research, figure out what team we want to pick. And then we'll present our cases on Monday and then maybe we'll either each take our three or we would have, we would pick one between the three and we can let the listeners vote. I w- I would like to have one. I'm cool with having a, a pod one that we can be family on, but I don't know if I want to share my clubhouse leader right now. 
So we're going to do, we're going to have one a piece and then one communal. Maybe. No, I think, I think if we're going to do a one a piece, we should just have one a piece. I think we should do one a piece. All right. So one a piece it is. Okay. What do you, I mean, is that cool, Tom? Yeah, no, that's fine. Okay. Are you guys going to look, are you guys approaching this as have, like finding a, te- a a group of five team that you think will be good? No, or, I'm or approaching you- it from a team I just have an interest in. Yeah, same. Okay. Okay. I, uh, I am picking, uh, right now, my clubhouse leader is not going to be considered in the top three or four of its conference heading into the season. But it ain't going to be expected to finish last, and it's that kind of volatility and mobility that has my uh, interest peaked. I just wanted to make sure that if I was if I was picking a middle tier group of five team, that I wasn't walking into some some uh, ribbing when your teams are better than mine. No, this is yeah okay all right. Yeah. I also I, I know that the it was originally presented that we could pick a bottom tier power five team, but I think we throw that out. I think we should just stick to group of five. Agree. I'm I'm with that. Okay. So Monday, we will present our group of five teams that we will be riding for week in and week out here on the Cover 3 podcast. Very, very excited for it. Uh, he is Barton Simmons. You can follow him at Barton Simmons. He is Tom Fernelli. You can follow him at Tom Fernelli. You can follow me at Chip underscore Patterson. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>